guilt. In analyzing the psychology of fallen man, guilt is a central factor. Fallen man is guilty man. Guilt, according to scripture, is a consequence of sin, and the primary and original sin is man's desire to be as God, to determine good and evil for himself. Genesis 3.5 All particular sins are products of this original and basic sin. However, in analyzing himself, man avoids the term sin. It has no place in his psychology or in his sociology. Guilt is admitted into the psychological vocabulary of humanism, but not sin. The reason for this is not difficult to fathom. Sin points to an act, a violation of a law, to responsibility, and to God. Guilt, as the concomitant of sin, also points to God, but because guilt is an intensely inner state as well as an external fact, it is less easy to dispose of. The reaction of Adam and Eve to their sense of guilt was relatively simple and naive. They hid themselves from God. They clearly felt guilty, even though they denied their sin, blaming their sin on the environment and ultimately on God. Genesis 3, 7-13 Lamech's reaction is somewhat more sophisticated. Having sinned, he boasted of his sin and declared it to be his virtue, strength, and principle, so that he denied both his sin and his guilt. Guilt feelings, however, are not easily disposed of, and modern man has found that guilt insistently plagues man. His answer, after Freud, has been to deny the fact of sin, but to affirm the reality of guilt, but only as a relic of a primitive past, the primal horde, the will to incest, the desire of the sons to possess the mothers and daughters, whom the father kept supposedly as his own sexual property, the will to patricide, to kill the father in order to possess the women and the will to cannibalism, to eat the killed father. As long as men felt guilty, Freud recognized, they would seek God, however much science disproved God. To abolish God, guilt would have to be converted from a religious to a scientific problem. Even non-Freudian psychologies at this point are Freudian, in that they separate guilt from sin, and after Freud, see guilt as a scientific rather than a religious problem. Ironically, however, a deadly inheritance goes with Freud's thesis. Because guilt is so basic to the will to live in Freud, to accomplish the scientific task of stifling guilt feelings is also to stifle the will to live and to unleash the will to death. The sexual revolution has capitalized on Freud's thesis. Sex has been divorced from law and love and made purely a pleasurable and prophylactic exercise. And Freud himself, who did not go as far as his present-day followers, the effect was marked. His own sexual life began late, around 30, according to his friend and biographer Ernest Jones, and subsided and ended early, around 40. The psychotherapist Rollo May calls attention to the freedom won by the sexual revolution, and with approval. External social anxiety and guilt have lessened. Dull would be the man who did not rejoice in this. But internal anxiety and guilt have increased. Moreover, the sexual revolution has not solved the problems it earlier claimed it would solve. We are confronted by the curious situation of the more birth control, the more illegitimate pregnancies. Sadomasochistic urges are clearly at work in such cases and reveal strong guilt feelings. The sexual freedom of the new sophisticate is called by May a new form of self-castration. The evidence from Scandinavia would tend to confirm this. Elliot observed of their detachment from life, 
but it may well be that this vague lack of deep satisfaction with the sensual life is at least partly responsible for the fact that 25% of all deaths during the young and most sexually viable years are suicides, an astonishing figure in a world where 2% of all deaths is considered a high rate of suicide, and the rate is almost double in the larger cities. Elliot found it to be indicative of Scandinavian mentality when a film hero said, My need is to be dead. Absolutely, totally dead. Men are largely dominated by women, and loneliness is deep and intense on all sides. It can be added that alcoholism is a major Scandinavian problem, and the use of drugs is increasing. Thus, while external social anxiety and guilt have lessened in Scandinavia with respect to sexual immorality, internal anxiety and guilt have apparently increased very markedly. The problem of guilt, both external or social, and internal and personal, thus concerns psychologists in our day as a very present issue. The answers, while ostensibly scientific, are rather echoes of ancient paganism. As Cheryl observed in 1945, Oddly enough, those psychologists who have most vigorously insisted that their work is scientific get results strikingly similar to views held by Greeks and others in, and others in past millenniums who put the conflict outside of man himself and then could find no way to solve it, arriving finally at nonsense. For in the last analysis, it does not make a great difference whether the nonsense is conceived as due to our being men at the mercy of a pack of stupid gods, or as due to our being animals bereft of rationality, trapped by a social environment gone mad, and terrorized by a physical environment of tremendous power in the hands of a crazy society. If man has thought to absolve himself of responsibility for his own plight and thus dignify himself in his own eyes, we may fairly ask whether he has accomplished more toward that end when he acted as academic psychologist in modern times than he did in previous ages by means of myth. Since Sherrill's study is an important contribution to the subject, it is necessary to examine his analysis of the subject. The dialectical nature of Greek thought tended to associate guilt with either mind or body, rather than to see it as an aspect of the whole man. Buddhism saw the moral conflict in man as itself evil and saw redemption in extinction. In antiquity, the problem of guilt and the moral conflict in man was seen in terms of light against darkness, or soul against body, or reason against irrationality. When the question has to do with ultimate responsibility for the outcome of the conflict, the two classic answers were that it is outside men or within man himself. If the responsibility for man's moral problem is outside of man, then God or the gods are responsible or guilty, not man. The gods in such a universe are hateful, and the universe is nonsense. If the conflict is within man, and guilt and responsibility rest with man, then the answer of paganism was flight, the flight of the soul from the body in Plato, the flight into mind or reason for Aristotle and the Stoics, or the flight into nothingness with the Buddhists. The dilemma of antiquity in its stark form was this. If the gods are responsible, the world is nonsense. A plague then upon their whole house. A jury of Athenian burghers could render a juster verdict than these loathsome deities. Let the average citizen of the universe have a hand in his own fate. What then? The alternative, once thought through to its end, gives startling results. If man is responsible, he must flee from himself to find rest. He may become a disembodied soul, or a passionless creature of reason all compounded, or become extinguished altogether. Since the Renaissance, modern man is all the more determined to eliminate God and guilt, and to find freedom and moral autonomy from God. This he planned to do by means of reason, 
but he soon deserted reason in favor of emotions. Modern man freed himself from the church also, only to create the greatest tyranny, the totalitarian modern state. Science has more recently been hailed as the savior, but is being more and more depicted as the demonic. Lena Nyman, the actress who played the fornicating heroine of I Am Curious, Yellow, is quoted by Elliot as saying, Dreamily, I think I've wanted to be a kind of sex savior in this film. The results, however, have been impotence and an emotional sterility. The more man has evaded guilt and responsibility, the more serious the outcroppings of guilt have become in the forms of anxiety, hostility, sadism, and masochism. According to Cheryl, the real cause of the anxiety is not outside the person, but within him. No evasion has worked. Man's attempts to evade guilt only increase guilt. In the words of Cheryl's masterly summation, In Christianity, it is commonly held that the responsibility is within man himself. Every possible escape from this hard conclusion seems hedged about in Christian teaching. It is hardly necessary even to recall the characteristic emphases of Christian doctrine regarding man's responsibility, so familiar are they. What of man? He is responsible for the outcome of his conflict. From him is taken the satisfaction of sitting in judgment on any other man, for it is his own condition which requires judging. He is the sinner, and the wages of sin is death. He is responsible for the plight into which his own sins have brought him. He is even accounted responsible with a kind of cumulative responsibility which reaches into the past and takes in his heredity. He is blocked off from attributing the blame for his own situation to his fathers or to their fathers before them. More yet, he is held accountable in many lines of Christian thought for the sins of the fathers themselves, as when it was said by Jesus that the blood of all the prophets slain from the generation of the world shall be required of this generation. Luke 11.50. Thus, when the teaching that every man is a sinner are added the yet more difficult doctrines of original sin, little more remains to be said by way of a reminder here that in Christianity the responsibility is held to be within man himself. And yet it means but little in Christianity to say that man is responsible, for man is responsible to God. In Christianity, as indeed in Judaism and Islam as well, man is under the judgment of God. He is a sufferer, but he is more than that, he is an offender. It is the will or the law of God, which he has not kept. It is important in this context to examine the verse cited by Cheryl, because it is seen so often as an example of the horrible doctrines taught in Scripture. Jesus Christ, in Luke 11.50, declared that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. This is true in every generation in varying degrees. No generation is ever born into an empty world. It inherits the wealth as well as the problems of the past. It cannot accept the one without accepting the other. It is a condition of being alive to be an heir, genetically, socially, religiously, and in various other ways. Every generation must give an account for its use of its inheritance of wealth, guilt, and problems. Supremely, the generation of Jews and also the Greeks and Romans of our Lord's day had an inheritance of great wealth in his presence, but also of great guilt for their indifference to and hatred for his servants, the prophets. Such guilt is still personal. A man, having inherited the advantages and burdens of the past, can neither pass the burdens nor the advantages on to society. He is himself responsible. He is himself a steward of his inheritance and of his life. Those who made Christ their atonement made one use of their inheritance, and those who rejected him made still another use. The disciples found their answer to their inheritance of guilt to be regeneration, 
being born again, and sanctification, obedience to the law of God. But, turning again to the psychology of fallen man, the more he denies externally the fact of guilt, the more the internal pressure of guilt builds up. Where external social pressures force the fact of guilt onto the minds of men, some masochistic appeasement does appear in the guilty man. There is a limited but very brief satiation of the inner guilt. Sin is an offense, and it is an offense primarily and essentially against God. It is warfare against God's law order, and its appeal is precisely that it is a lawless assault against God's world. Thus, Eliot cites a pervert as complaining, They smother us with tolerance. The life of a sexual deviant is no longer exciting and glamorously illicit. As a result in Scandinavia, to maintain this assault, new frontiers for sin are explored. Incest is being urged. Dr. Lars Ullerstam has suggested state subsidies for every kind of pervert, and his proposals are seriously debated in the Swedish parliament. The Swedish government subsidizes pornographic films up to 75% of production costs, and the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palm appeared in the film I Am Curious, Yellow. Elliot reported, I asked Palm if he had known that the film was going to be largely pornographic. Was it? he asked. It is not illogical to assume that these films represent an aspect of an assault against remaining standards within Sweden as well as Christian standards abroad. The fallen man talks of a new order, but the essence of that new order is a prolonged assault on God's order and a noisy denial of guilt before God. Inescapably, the politics of unregenerate man is the politics of atonement. Man needs atonement. Either he will receive it from God by Christ, or he will try to work out his own atonement. Self-atonement is either sadistic or masochistic. Guilty men will either punish themselves for their sins, as they seek to work out the burden of guilt, or they will attempt to lay the guilt on others by sadistic actions against them. The politics of atonement is thus suicidal. Instead of being geared to reality, it leads men to actions governed by their overriding sense of guilt. If men will not have Christ's atonement for their sin and guilt, they will be increasingly governed by their guilt.